Okay. Um, today's readings are Genesis 9, 8 through 17, and Psalm 25, 1 through 10. They can be found on pages 9 and 511 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Our second reading is Psalm 25, 1 through 10. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of grace, we come broken, we come flawed, we come from many different experiences, we may be happy, we may be sad, we may be um, believing fervently today, we may be doubting like never before. But it is true that we sit here more broken and more of a mess than we, than we want others to know, than we care to admit. And um, we look in a world of hearing all kinds of noise all the time, and the noise uh, just chattering and clattering and clanging around us. From traffic to advertisements to conversations to media, and we come and we, we look now to listen 
I, I call upon your grace as we enter this moment of listening. Because though we're more broken than we care to admit, your love is more accepting. We are more validated and accepted and loved in, in Christ than we ever imagined. Broken and yet moved towards with your love. May we enter into this time of listening, trying to navigate that anomaly, that gracious, amazing anomaly of how you approach us. Speak to us in such a way that our lives might be changed. Amen. <clears throat> um, I, I, I get to be humbled a lot in life, I feel like. Um, especially, you know, with a, a job that kind of puts me up here and a calling that kind of puts me up here to use words in front of people all the time. Um, I, you know, we put this question of the week together and you, you guys responded to it. And I, I love just reading this. It just makes me... You know, fall in love with all of you all over again, your replies. Let's see, where is it? Here it is. Um, so I've got to read a few of these. The question was, are you humble? And uh, I just love the responses. Someone says, well, yes, it is my spiritual gift. I, tr- I try not to brag about it. Someone else says, no, but there are people less humble than me. Love that one. I love that. Um, someone else says, um, outwardly, I, s- I would say I am, but on the inside, I guess I still want glory and credit. Yeah, that just kind of feels like, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, I get that. Um, I, I had a humbling experience where one week I came to my wife, Lisa, who's one of the, you know, one of the funniest people I know. Um, she also speaks her mind and just says it like it is. So I came and I said, you know, it's like middle of the week. I said, I got permission to use this story, by the way, because I'm the one humbled in the story, not her. So, I, I, so I'm, we're sitting there and I say, you know, I've got, I got to run this by you because I think it's great. I got the, the big idea for the sermon this week is everybody loves to be, or everybody wants to be fancied. And she said, yeah, everybody in the 1920s. <laughs> like, okay, yep, you got me. I just thought that was hilarious, and she nailed it. Like sometimes, I've, okay, I'm using an outdated term there, and that actually isn't the best way to say that in today's world. Thank you for humbling me. Um, and I've had many experiences like this, and one of the things about being humbled is you walk out of it saying, or you're in the midst of it, and you say, I can see this is good. This is developing good things in me that I wouldn't have if I was succeeding and on top of the world right now. And yet nobody, if you're given a button that says, push for the next phase of your life to be a humbling one, <laughs> nobody would walk up and say, yes. I mean, you could be in a place this morning where you're flying high, you're on the top of the world, things have been going great for two years, three years. I mean, everything's fallen into place. And you kind of know, like, there's a, maybe a character complacency at work. And, and, and you know in your mind, you could say, you know, I could probably really use a humbling phase right now. And yet someone says, all right, here's the switch. And you'd be like, out the door. No, thank you. I will take the switch that says a non-humbling next five years of my life. Same goes for somebody. Could be, you could be in the middle today. You could be sitting here. You're in the middle of experiences and life events that just have you on your knees. You just, you know, maybe something that you've done that's sort of come back on you, something other folks have done, and you're just sitting, you know, it's just one of those phases of life, and you're maybe even starting to see that layer where you say, 
this is doing good, I hate this, but this is doing good things for who I am. This is building something different that couldn't happen in any other way. And yet again, someone, someone says, well, you want some more of this? How about the next five years continue this way? No, thank you, out the door. <laughs> That's just how it is. That's the default position and posture of, our, of the human heart is to, is to try to go around, over, under, but never through a humbling experience if given the opportunity. And so in the wisdom of the Christian tradition, somehow they came together and, and they developed this practice during the season of Lent and they say, let's have a season of driving our attention through humility as a way to receive grace. Because that's essentially what what humility is. Humility isn't, you know, like a character badge that you say it's an end in itself. Now, in addition to, you know, this accolade and this character trait and this, now I have humility as well. Humility is only good in that it opens you up and opens the door to receiving God's grace in a way that you just never could otherwise. So we're going to look at how Psalm 25 is perfectly set up to to kind of teach us in the practice of humility. It's a humble psalm. It's a humble prayer that we're being taught by today as a way to find God's grace. Um, And not surprisingly, there are three aspects I want to key in on. Not every passage has neatly into three parts, but for some reason a lot of my messages make it look that way. So here we go. There's three practices of humility that this psalm points to. First of all, facing your sins. Second of all, accepting redirection. And third, submitting to a competent guide. Let's look at uh, facing, facing your sin. <clears throat> in Psalm 25, sin is like a matter, a matter of fact in the conversation with God in a way that would make, I think, us com- uncomfortable today. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. God instructs sinners in his ways. And then verse 11, if you had the Bibles open here, it wasn't on the screen. We stopped at 10, but it says, For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Our culture says to us, you are good. Our culture says to us, um, what is the solution to the dilemmas and the things that we face, the, the, the bumps in the road and the internal self-struggles, is to surround yourself with more of those messages of, you are good. That actually gets us into a lot of uh, problems that the, the narrative of the Christian that, that the Bible has us enter into has a lot of different, uh, different benefits to. And that narrative is this, you were made good. There is a great, amazing, unique, beautiful design, but it's flawed. It's broken. It's incomplete. It's like, it's like a GPS, you know, in, in a rental car that you get that, you know, you just realize after a few turns that it, it's completely out of whack. It's either got a virus or the satellite's not accessing it. And it's, you know, telling you to go this way, that way, and there's, it's just absolutely incapable on its own of getting you down the right path. That's the, that's the view, biblically, of where we find ourselves. And so in Psalm 25, it's like a matter of fact. This is, this is, the, this is something that is 
just a reality in the life of a spiritually healthy person. In fact, I think that, spiritually speaking, the very definition of an unhealthy spiritual posture is one in which you know, you, there's denial. There's, you're ignorant of your corrupt heart, and you've just got the blinders on before the world. And all this doesn't sound very good to us. All of this sounds like the very opposite of our, our favorite cultural message that says, you are good. You're good. To get that negative stuff out of your brain. So how is it? You know, how, basically I said all of these, all three of these are, are doors that open up to grace. How does this open up to grace? How is this gracious? Well, you look at how the shocking exchange of this prayer includes verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> and you see that it says, Remember, Lord... Your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. And then here we go, right here. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. What's shocking and, and amazing about this is that in the, in the life of faith with the God of the Bible, as you go to God and eat humble pie regularly, you actually don't in anywhere in there, appeal to your record or appeal to your goodness. Notice who's good? Who's good? Yeah. For you, Lord, are good. This is just, this is the unpredicted, amazing, kind of open secret of the Christian faith that is different from every other approach to things, that you go to God in your faith, in your religion, in your spirituality, and you go and you appeal to his record, his goodness, as your way of things working out. It's actually shocking and unique. Um, Theologian Emil Bruner, I think I'm saying his name right, says it this way. He says, All other forms of religion, not to mention philosophy, deal with the problem of guilt apart from intervention of God. And therefore, they come to a cheap conclusion. In them, mankind is separated, or sorry, is spared the final humiliation of knowing that the mediator must bear the punishment instead of him. So as we come to God, it's almost best thought of in the words of that old hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Facing your sins. Practice number one. Practice number two, accepting redirection. Psalm 25 is thick with this desire and these appeals to be redirected. There's a lot of language of which way am I on? Is it rebellious ways or is it your path, God? Is it this other path, this good path? You see it all over the place in this psalm. It's one of the, the biggest kind of, if you're a literature person, it's one of those key words that kind of keeps popping up throughout. Pathway, way, you know, guide me. It's all these path kind of language things. It's all about a prayer in which you're seeking redirection. And you're comfortable regularly looking to God for redirection. It's a practice of humility that the church recognizes and encourages. 
<clears throat> I love this picture. I was reading this book about um, this Cy Young award-winning uh, baseball pitcher. I'm not even that big of a baseball fan. I'm just intrigued by this book. By this, um, this he, he's a current major leaguer named R.A. Dickey, and he's a knuckleballer. You've heard of him, so we got some baseball knowledge in the house. So he's he's apparently the only uh, active pitcher in all of uh, Major League Baseball who throws maj- the majority of his pitches with a knuckleball. It's like a very rare pitch. He throws 80% of his pitches with a knuckleball, which is one of these pitches that just apparently, from my reading, <laughs> um, just can drop in just totally unpredictable directions to make it almost impossible to hit. So on his journey to get there, he wasn't always good at that, and he started out as a regular pitcher and sort of reinvented himself. He tells the story of going to legendary baseball pitcher Phil Necro for like this final analysis and learning this life lesson on how to throw the perfect knuckleball. He says, I call Phil and introduce myself. This is from his book called Wherever I Wind Up. Get it? Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. I call Phil and introduce myself. I know who you are. I've seen you on TV a couple of times this year, he says. We arranged for me to, to meet him in Atlanta next week at an indoor baseball facility near his home. It's the middle of January. I send him the video ahead of time so he can get familiar with my mechanics. Phil is 69 years old and looks great, as if he could still baffle battles, batters with his knuckler. Let's get to work, he says. I have my laptop, and I pop in one of the DVDs I sent him, one of the stronger games I had over the year. I want to see one of your bad games, Phil says. We learn more from those. I insert a new disc, and Phil watches intently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there and just think about that picture for this idea of seeking redirection. Think about that, like that idea of exposing yourself to that degree to someone else and saying, let's take my worst stuff and let's lay it out. Is there... What, if you had to think right now about an area of your life that truly you need that kind of exposure, maybe you're getting it. Maybe you, you figured this out long ago, but, but more than likely you're probably not to the degree it would be helpful. Where you're, you have some, you've thrown it out there. You have a basic approach to some specific people that says, <clears throat> uh, what do you see here in this? Let me lay things out before you. I need, I need extra eyes to look in. I'm going to assume that I am going to go all the wrong ways all the time if I don't have help. Is that your approach in life? <clears throat> and, you know, the red flags go up right away, left and right. Aren't all paths equally valid? Aren't we all just on our own beautiful, unique journeys Um, isn't it all equally valid? Why do you got to you know, have this approach that, you know, feel bad about yourself or your path? Isn't life just a blank canvas to create my own unique path? You know, the interesting thing is we, we might imagine Jesus as being the kind of person who would agree with that sort of cultural um, message. Jesus was an incredibly accepting person. Jesus was a kind of person that, it, that surprisingly brought in people from all different paths. In fact, he hated exclusivism in religious folks. He hated the hypocrisy of the teachers of the law. He was so loving and ready to spend his time with people who no one else valued. 
and he was in the most gracious, giving person um, in all the stories that talk about him. And yet he was, he was inflexible on this point. It's, it's, it's surprising to us today. He was inflexible on this point in that he, he leads us to believe just like the whole, um, the whole canon of Scripture and the Jewish Scriptures that went before him. He comes right along and says, there's the right path and there's all the others. <laughs> in fact, the way he puts it is pretty startling. But it agrees with, if you're a Bible person, well, let me, let me go in reverse. Let me read Psalm 1, which Jesus would have known well. Let me just read the last verse of Psalm 1, where it says, this is a psalm about, there's two paths, basically. And in the last verse kind of summarizes it. For the Lord watches over the way, or path, of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be destroyed. Jesus just takes us right into his own teachings and says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. There's that destroying word again. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus gives the impression that few of us, or let me just put it a different way, that most of us, most of the time, will find ourselves not going in the right direction, not on the right path. And, and just kind of inviting us to live in that tension and in that need to be redirected as Psalm 25 just boldly prays and lays it out there. <clears throat> and this is, this is what it means really to be a Christian. I think that when I read a, uh, this, this little vignette that um, Graham Tomlin cites in his book, The Provocative Church, he cites a successful political lobbyist named Derek Draper who... <clears throat> who became a Christian, and this is, the, this is how this Derek Draper describes it. He says, I started to discover Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings. I'm still learning about the liturgy, and there's no doubt that as I read, I struggle both with aspects of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and with the actions, past, and presence of organized religion or organized church. What I know, though, is that none of that matters too much. The core of my Christianity is a belief in the wisdom of Jesus' words as told in the Gospels. I'm going to try to live my life according to what Jesus laid down 2,000 years ago. And he, he, he elaborates a little bit, but just for time's sake, I just want to point out this concept of there's a shift, there's a redirection, and it's not just a one time, it's a, it's a prayerful, it's a way of living before God, this sort of always open for redirection. Where's the grace in it? Where's the grace? All of these, I remember I said at the beginning, all of these are pathways to grace. Here's the grace. Jesus goes before you and walks the path perfectly and stays on it. And when, when Jesus kind of gives us the model of Lent, those 40 days in the wilderness, he's actually, we're actually being told about that in that way to remind us of God's people, ancient Israel and the Old Testament, and how they, in their 40 years in the desert wanderings consistently were going like this and not, not going the right way and not responding positively to every temptation that came their way. And so Jesus comes and walks that journey in the desert for 40 days as a way of embodying the people of God's journey for them. As a way of saying, he goes out for 40 days in the desert 
and he resists all temptation and comes out as our, as our one who goes before us. God's tenacious love for you refuses to let your waywardness off the path mean that you're not going to stay on the path and get there. He refuses. He goes before you to pave the way in your place. And then third, so we've got, you know, you've got to face your sins, you've got accepting redirection. These are all humbling practices. And then submitting to a competent guide. Notice how in Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5, we read, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. You look at verse 9. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. So part of this humble journey is seeking guidance. We're not very good at this. I love, I love one of the commentators I read this week just summarizes Psalm 25's kind of need for guidance this way. The heart of the believer is never confident without also being submissive to his God. Say that again. The heart of the believer, and it's, all, it's, it's an older commentary, so it's masculine language. The heart of the believer is never confident without also being uh, submissive to his or her God. Think about that. Confidence only paired with submissiveness? We usually think, I'm confident because I'm sort of, I've shored up myself. You know? I've walked away from submitting to this and that because that just breaks, that just you know, pushes me down. I shore up over here myself, kind of the definition of pride. Now I'm confident. And, and this psalm opens up a completely paradoxical, you know, fascinating path. Only in the midst of submission are you confident. You're confident not in yourself but in God. And in a sense, what, this is what the Bible is getting at over and over when it talks about God's leadership in our life as a shepherd. And if you, you know, back then they would have known, you know, in this agrarian culture, they would have known all about shepherding and how it's involved. People would have had the experience when they read Psalm 23, and the Lord is my shepherd. They would have had the experience of seeing shepherds uh, kind of meeting at the water hole together and then calling out with their voice, and the sheep who have been mingled from different flocks separating just by the voice of the shepherd, their trusted guide. And this, this is a psalm that kind of brings us into that mentality of, you know, my, my spiritual condition is such um, that I need to recognize I have a huge need for a trusted guide for my soul. I need a, vo- a trusted voice. So often we, we fail to do this. We fail to realize just the, the, the depth of the huge need that we have to be just, just guided. We, it's like we're not desperate enough. There's this article that came out about <clears throat> people who are seeking to cross the border from, um, into the United States, from Mexico and from further south. This is in 2005, claiming that over 300 people a year die trying to cross the border in the United States. So the Mexican government was kind of controversial. They published a guide that advises its citizens on the intricacies of sneaking into the United States. The 31-page pamphlet, The Guide for the Mexican Immigrant. Um, And (coughs) 
and of course, you know, of course, this gets a, you know gets all of you your political hackles kind of kind of up and stuff. But just just hear hear me out on this because there's so this article gets into like how how do you get guided across a border? What are the safe ways? And the booklet warns that the migrant that if he decides to use the services of a smuggler, or maybe you've heard the term coyote, he should not hand his children over to him, not carry packages or drive a vehicle for him, as they may contain drugs, and not trust his assurances. Um, they end up interviewing some people who have made it across the border. This are, the journalist actually goes to a Home Depot and starts talking to people standing out in the parking lot, and this is some of the things they say. Never hire a coyote on the border, says Mr. Castillo, a thickly built man with whiskers and gold teeth referring to the smugglers who guide illegal immigrants into the United States. Have a friend recommend a contractor while you're in your hometown, he advised. This way, if anything happens to you, your family knows his family. Those who hire strangers at the border are more likely to be robbed, raped, or held for ransom, Mr. Castillo said. He said it should not cost more than $2,000 to go from the Mexican side of the border to Phoenix. It goes on and on to describe safe houses where uh, migrants are put until the family wires money um, to the smuggler and then they're set free in the United States. Here's my point. The... I was struck with the desperation that must be involved in people who, say, who, who know they want something, have a sense they need something so badly that case after case of people entrusting children, life savings to someone that they don't even know, they don't even have a connection to, to be their guide to get to this thing they feel so, they so desperately need. In many ways, I think, if only you and I had that desperation of our spiritual condition and how much we need God's guidance. The great shepherd, as the Bible kind of introduces him to us, if only we had that same desperation spiritually. And the grace, of course, in this, if you open up, if this is a humble thing, the idea of going to God for guidance, saying, your ways are the ways I actually need. Teach me. I'm at a crossroads. I'm in this struggle. Things are going well. I'm still going to go to you and say, what's your way next? And even to let under-shepherds in and deputize people in your own life to help in that guidance, to entrust to them. That's a really hard one. But where's the grace in all of this? It's simply in this, that Jesus becomes the shepherd. And as he talks about himself, he says, I am the great shepherd of the sheep. He says, in a sense, he says the kinds of things that win over our submission to him as a guide. Because he says, the good shepherd, the sheep know his voice, and he lays down his life for the sheep. The, um, the coyote guiding someone across the border, the, the reality of that is... They make the migrant take on all the risk. Jesus, as he guides us, he says, I take on all the risk of death, of losing everything, as I guide you safely, exactly where you need to go. In Lent is the time to look to these practices to to develop humility as a way to open yourself up to receiving grace. Let's pray. God of grace, Please do just that. Today, some people needed to hear 
different things, and I pray that we hear it, and that as these words from Psalm 25 sit with us, that they'll percolate in your Holy Spirit, we'll use all kinds of things in our life, things now and things this week, you know, the, the, the Lord's Supper that we're about to see happen, songs, prayers, and open up for us what your grace really means in our troubled lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.